0: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. This is your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from storm ravaged New York City. I am pleased to be joined today by um, uh, some old friends and some new friends who've been participating in a uh, venture to consider the scenarios that might befall us if the President of the United States and those close to him uh, determined to put their thumb on the scales of the election or worse. uh, leading this effort, one of the people leading this effort is our own Rosa Brooks, which is one of the reasons we thought we should do it. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. I do want to tell you, Rosa, that on yesterday's podcast, in your absence, Ed Luce made a play for the Thorny Crown of Entropy. He
1: can't uh, have it.
0: Uh, you know, and 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 made a very good imitation of Rosa Brooks, I have to say.
2: But Rosie, you can keep you can keep the 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 crown. But these were leading questions. I had prepared a a very upbeat pep talk, and then Although David I'm, just I'm, led I'm, me down a pessimistic <laughs> road.
1: I'm pretty sure that I remember from my high school physics that the nature of entropy is that it spreads.
0: Exactly. Thank you. And 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 I'm sure your high school physics teacher is happy that you remember that. Uh, also <laughs> joining us, we have Bill Kristol, who is a well-known commentator. Uh, he was the founder and editor-at-large of uh, The Weekly Standard, and he's now the editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Thank you for joining us, Bill.
3: Good to be with you all.
0: And we have Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who is a distinguished visiting professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. He, uh, his last uh, position in the U.S. government was as chief of staff to Colin Powell at the State Department. Uh, welcome back. Uh, nice to talk to you, Larry. Good to be with you, David. Uh, so, uh, Rosa, you are one of the folks who was behind this project. Can you, in a in a in a brief way, encapsulate the goals?
1: Sure. Um, so the goals were to explore some of the what ifs associated with the upcoming presidential election. Uh, as you know, we've had this conversation on this podcast and in many forms at many times. Um, but since I'm sort of apocalyptically oriented, I'm always trying to tell other people that they're not being paranoid enough. <laughs> um, and to that end, I, I try to enlist others to share my collective paranoia. Um, because misery loves company. Um, And, and I, 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 it really seemed to me um, that a lot of us quite naturally have a little too much faith in legal institutions, uh, in uh, bureaucratic institutions and so on to just somehow magically save us from bad behavior uh, by political actors. And, you know, I, I, my my paranoid instinct is always to assume that they won't necessarily, that they don't that the the courts, the law, the military, the secret service, you name it, um, none of us operate in a vacuum, that these institutions aren't neatly separated from from politics uh, and power and power of narrative, and that if we, want to feel confident that we understand the various risks associated with the upcoming election, that it was actually useful to really try to play out various scenarios and not just stop at, oh, yes, but that probably won't happen, or, oh, but that would be illegal, so it won't happen, uh, or, oh, but that institution is not supposed to do that, so that won't happen. Um, so that is what we did. We designed uh, a number of scenario-based exercises uh, that examined what we thought were the most plausible uh, scenarios as of late on election day in terms of vote outcomes and which states would be where. Uh, and we assigned players, including Ed and, and Larry and Bill, two different teams. And um, we essentially chose as our baseline scenarios, one involving a big Biden win in both the popular vote and the electoral vote, one modeled on the 2016 election where we had a decisive Trump Win in the Electoral College, but a a loss in the popular vote. One narrow Biden win in the Electoral College, kind of a squeaker, and then one that was like the election of 2000, a period of extended uncertainty and even indeterminacy about whether there could be said to be a winner. And we had people on teams, um, Bill was one of our Donald Trumps. (laughs) I hope he'll talk about that. And um, we asked them to do what they thought they would do if they were those players uh, seeking to advance their interests and then there were moves and counter moves by the other teams because we wanted to just see see how it might play out.
0: Well, let's go around and see what the takeaways were, and then we'll talk a little bit about what the lessons may be going forward. Uh, Let me start with you, Bill. Were you infected with Rosa's apocalyptic sense, and um, how did you feel being Donald Trump for a day?
3: It was, it was tough, but someone has to do it. You know, the sacrifices one makes for one's country are, are always, uh, <laughs> this is the worst one I have to make or uh, that's not so terrible. See, um,
1: Bill, I I got to play Trump in our dry run and I found it quite liberating to be entirely free of moral constraint.
3: Yeah. But I was, ruthless. I know Rosa was encouraging <laughs> me in the chat function on the side of the zoom, you know, yeah. uh, uh, screen to be even more ruthless and unprincipled and, uh, Sort of authoritarian, you know, really let my true inner authoritarianism come out and just forget about all those constraints that one has uh, um, had, I guess, bred into one over years of just being a, an American citizen and, and and being in government a little bit and and so forth. So my main takeaway, and there met so, I mean, a there's yes, you should be worried, quite worried. I would say I will say one thing, and I think Rosa would agree with this. This was very much election day or election night on and there's a lot to worry about over that two and a half month period there's also a lot to worry about over the three months until election day which has also gotten a fair amount of attention obviously in the media and elsewhere about what could be done uh, that's illegal or marginally legal or an abusive uh, authority but nonetheless hard to constrain uh and, of course, we have a president who was impeached for something like that a year ago. So it's not as if this is just, let's just make something up really crazy. Like, he tries to get a favor from a foreign government and has, you know, his private attorney running around uh, Central and Eastern Europe, you know, dealing with government officials from other countries and, and trying to cover up and uh, whistleblower complaints and so forth. So it isn't, I mean, I think it's really Ukraine sort of happened uh, and the impeachment happened and people quickly moved on to other things. And then, of course, we had the genuine public health crisis and consequent economic crisis and people sort of thought, okay, well, that was over. But the lesson of Ukraine needs to be front and center in people's minds, which shows a pretty high degree of uh, willingness on Trump's part to do things. He didn't really get away with it, but think about it for a minute. Uh, Everyone who stopped him is gone. He was stopped by a bunch of people, you know, a bit of fact. I mean, he was stopped by people, career people mostly, not entirely in the State Department and in the foreign policy bureaucracy who refused to do certain things. Whether they were ambassador to Ukraine or in the State Department, there was ultimately whistleblower uh, who came forward, people like John Bolton, who sort of kept the national security staff out of it because he said it was a drug deal. Almost literally, I think every, every person who, was, uh, who didn't let Trump get away with Ukraine and who helped us all know about it, helped Congress know about it, and helped us know about it, is gone. And there were institutional uh, barriers, and there remain some, and there are plenty of people in the government who won't do things that are illegal or wrong. But I think there's a lesson there that we're, we're, we're sort of in a situation now with the current people working for Trump uh, who were less resistant even than in 2019 when he almost got away with getting a foreign government to presumably invent or create dirt on his then likely opponent, the, the opponent he feared, who incidentally is his opponent, Joe Biden. But uh, the one point I would make uh, is, is this the one thing i learned that's a little different i think or was reminded of there's a little different maybe from the a lot of the media coverage is there's a ton of things that could be bad and about those uh, two and a half months after the election violence and uh, disinformation and all kinds of things i think generally the coverage i think the games show this uh, underestimates how much of an advantage you have if you control the executive branch of the united states government i mean we know this if you look at a foreign country, right? If there's a close contested election, an extremely divided country, kind of ruthless, semi-authoritarian, leaning person who still has elections, however, in a country and it was close, we would all say, Boy, that you watch out for the president. You know, he'll he'll manage to figure out a way to use government, use the incumbency to get him an extra point or two or three. And there are plenty of businesses of that. People who didn't do it, it's always a little surprise, you know, Pinochet, I'm thinking in Chile with a referendum. But he actually didn't. He sort of let it be, apparently, a kind of free and fair election, though after I thought about that for another 10 seconds, I realized that's partly because we and everyone else were leaning extremely hard on him to be a free and fair election with observers, as I believe this is the case ahead of time and with a lot of diplomatic pressure the day of the election and right after on Pinochet from us and from others in this hemisphere and elsewhere. Of course, this is the U.S., right? So we usually used to pressure put pressure on behalf of free and fair elections, mostly, I don't romanticize it. Uh, and now we're the, we we wouldn't, who's gonna pressure us? Anyway, long way of saying that I think, um, you know, there's a lot of things he controls. There are limits, there are a lot of very decent civil servants and even political appointees who won't do certain things. Um, I Final point I'd make is, I guess the DHS stuff in Portland, it was, it was that that was a little after our, Exercises, I think, or at I least
1: think that's right. Our exercises at were at least, we were after Lafayette
3: Square. Defense, but Lafayette Square, it happened. Yeah, yeah. Was, what about the Defense Department? Esper and Milley go along with this, which is obviously very important to talk about. And I think we sort of missed, or I felt, I personally, let me put it this way: I, as Trump, I fired Esper because I thought he would be too resistant to my efforts and put uh, Rick Grinnell in as Secretary of Defense, which you can do, because he had a. Uh, under the Vacancies Act, I believe it's an acting thing. He had a, 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 a presidential appointment that was Senate confirmed, and he will probably do things Esper wouldn't do. Still, the military is a pretty big bar, I would say, to what Trump would want. DHS, not so much, right? And Portland is a real, uh, so that was a little wake-up call that I was trying to be there to be being kind of imaginatively authoritarian, but it didn't occur to me what you can do with border patrol troops who don't have the norms and the institutionalized constraints that the Defense Department does. So people should be worried, and they should worry a lot about Trump's ability to use the authorities of the executive branch, the levers of power. And they can be checked in certain ways by the media, by governors, by other parts of the government, uh, but they require some thought ahead of time as to how to limit his advantage in a sense from, from, from incumbency.
0: Well, we'll come back and, and talk talk about some of those things in, in uh, subsequent rounds of this, but let's uh, continue on with Larry. And, uh, you know, I, I I know you a little bit, Larry, and know a little bit about your career, and you clearly have focused on foreign governments around the world that have uh, posed uh, threats like this to democracy. I suspect it was something of a unpleasant surprise to find yourself having a conversation like this about the United States.
4: Yeah, it's... It... In a half century or so of what I would call sentient government work in one capacity or another, I I don't think I ever dreamt that I would see anything like this, a day like today. Uh, Rosa's uh, simulations, tabletop exercises demonstrated some things, gave us some insights, one of which was uh, very powerfully what Bill just mentioned, that it really is a very powerful incumbency especially when you have packed that incumbency with your sycophants and your lackeys from the Postmaster General to now Brigadier General Tata in the third position, as it were, at DOD. And you have people who will do what you ask for, and you start seeing things like what are, I think, very strategic explorations of what one can do, not just with Homeland Security normal law enforcement types, but were the kind of people we hired at State Department to work in Iraq and Afghanistan, Triple Canopy, then Blackwater and other groups like that, who will more be more than willing to come, put on uniforms, patches, and all the regalia, and work for you in this capacity. Um, and when you look at where the deployments were made into basically democratic strongholds, um, and especially you look at Chicago, where a pretty good politician did a role reversal a few days ago uh, after not allowing federal forces into Chicago or saying she didn't want them. She suddenly welcomed them. One wonders what kind of phone call took place there. I don't know. But this is very dangerous, I think, to be watching the attorney general, I think, orchestrating much of this as well as online security um, happen as preparation for potential disruption Uh, of election procedures in November. That's what I see it as. And I think that's one of the insights that I've gained from my own simulations. I do this at Women Mary every semester, sometimes multiple times each semester. And the one I did at the close of this last semester with my graduate students was COVID-19. And we entertained the different options that the principals committee had put forward to the National Security Council with regard to how to deal with COVID-19. And we had one that was codeworded and was uh, essentially let the economy prosper and let people die. And as we discussed that, one, I realized that uh, ethical and moral considerations could quickly go by the wayside, put politics into it, too, in a desperate president, and they could go by the wayside rather swiftly. So these are the kind of insights I gained from simulations like the one Rosa conduct- Rosa, Rosa conducted and the ones I've conducted. And uh, they're not uh, comfortable. They're disconcerting. Let me turn to
2: you now, Ed, for what your takeaway was. Um, just how essential um, what what Rosa and Neil Gilman set up. Just how how important it is to do this, precisely because there is no precedent in American history for having um, a president in office whom we don't trust to accept the results or to um, provide a free and fair setting um, for the voting in the first place. Um, uh, Gaming out the possibilities is therefore extremely important because there is nothing to rummage around with, at least in American history, um, to uh, um, point us towards what uh, a bad faith president can do in this situation and the kinds of powers a bad faith president would have. I mean, the last two one-term presidents George Bush Senior and Jimmy Carter were profoundly honourable individuals. Nobody would have even dreamt of playing these kinds of war game scenarios with them. But uh, and you know, uh, perhaps the only comparable figure, Nixon, you know, w- w- was removed from office. So there is nothing in American history that that um, can help us here. So these games are. Really essential. Um, I, I think um, when, uh, and, well, if and hopefully when um, Rosa sets up um, more of these, um, and hopefully I'll be fortunate enough to be invited to help play the mo- role of the media again. Um, uh, somebody Have should play some- the role
1: of the media so well; it's almost like you've had some experience.
2: <laughs> yeah I want to I want to be either the the Q and part of it um or, or, or the extreme twitter left next time uh, I w- I was the mainstream media which felt very uh, far too balanced and sane in these contexts um uh somebody should play or maybe you should play a sort of pre-election scenario a build up you know with 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 a role allocated to the postmaster general you know uh, the guy who's now got the the job um louis uh, to, to joy is um, as we all know um, helping to whether this is deliberate or not I suspect it is but he's helping to um, make an already fairly rickety process that uh, is not efficient for uh, mail in ballots and absentee ballots in normal elections and normal primaries um, making that even worse by and batting over time amongst letter carriers um, uh uh, shutting down sorting machines, telling them not to go on extra trips. So, we're already getting huge delays, even in express mail, going on now. And I think there are reasonable grounds to believe that, given how close this new postmaster general is to Trump, he's a big donor to the Trump Victory Fund, how close he is and um, what Trump's overriding priority is, um, that this is a bit like the DHS um, Little Green Man in Portland, a dress rehearsal for some postal mess-ups um, to, to November. And, and you can have no doubt about it, that if, you, if you've got five, six weeks after the New York Democratic primaries, they're still counting mailed-in ballots. They're still counting, and, got, and you know you, 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 you have election officers who are not trained in this, not trained in handwriting, they've got to check off the signature on the mailed in ballot against uh, another signature that they have online that's all that's all they have to do they they that to, to reject a ballot um so if you've got that kind of situation and on top of that the postmaster general is sort of clogging up of the works then um i think you know that's a scenario you've you've sort of got to play out is is what about just having a tsunami of of uncounted ballots just uh, on its own as a scenario, just what 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 would be the public's instinct if Trump is ahead in terms of the on the day voting in person voting in these swing states, but fifty percent or more of the ballots um have not been counted, and he's calling for um, he's calling for the victory to be declared because he's shown as ahead instinctively intuitively. A lot of people would think, well, he is ahead. And you know, he's told us so many times that um mail in ballots are fraud prone. And you know, they've got these hundreds of thousands, they've got these millions of unopened ballots. Uh and you know, anything could happen. Who is it who's opening them? Um, that that to me is is almost the most worrying dimension to this. This is without getting into Bill Barr and and, you know, patched federal agents and um um all the other powers that Trump Trump has is, has at his disposal. And, of course, some of your scenarios did get into that, so I'm not saying you overlooked it. But it's just since your scenarios were played out, that's loomed larger and larger as as, as an extremely worrisome issue. The, 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 need, to, the need to sort out um, how mail-in ballots are treated, how many people are there to count them, how well-trained they are, how quickly it can be done, seems to me to be like a defcon situation hugely important for american democracy.
0: So let me before we get into the discussion about what do we do about this um uh, Rosa I'd like to take a parenthetical check and I'm, you know you, you may not have any any anything you want to add to what I'm going to say here but it does strike me listening to this when we talk about this is a situation that uh Uh, is unprecedented in American history that we may be speaking a little too quickly. There have been contested and cheated elections throughout American history, Uh, whether it's, you know, Alexander Hamilton working behind the scene to undo uh, Aaron Burr versus Thomas Jefferson where there was a virtual tie or the election of 1876 or the election of 1888 uh, or the election of... uh, John Kennedy in 1960, and dead people voting in, in 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 Cook County, Illinois, or in West Virginia, or Watergate, where they were trying to fiddle with it, or 2016, where clearly the Russians intervened. This isn't new behavior, is it, Rosa? I mean, we, you know, there are two things that people say to say this isn't going to happen, which is one, you know, this is unprecedented; it's never happened before, and two, the law forbids it. But in both of those cases, we have plenty of evidence to suggest those arguments are pretty weak, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is different than many of those examples that you gave historically, although not from all of them. Um, I do think we have certainly had in, let's just say, the last you know 50 years or so, a pretty strong tradition of playing by the rules except on the margins, right? And I think actually one of the things that the election of 2000, that the, hang, the great hanging chads election highlighted um, was the incredible state-by-state, locality-by-locality patchwork of election procedures in this country, um, such that it's it's probably fair to say that even at a completely normal election, um, you know, that there are some percentage you know one or two percentage of votes are probably miscounted or not counted or messed up in, in some way or another. but most of the time that kind of comes out in the wash because most of the time the margins are sufficient that 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 small margin of error doesn't matter that much um, or it never registers at all. I think in in 2000 what we saw in Florida was suddenly, oh boy, this is so close that you know a few hundred votes, could decide the fate of the entire country in terms of who becomes president, and in fact that did happen. And it became apparent that there was some sort of fundamental indeterminacy, you know, nobody had really quite thought through, well, you know, it's the hanging chad at such and such an angle count, and my God, because we'd never, we hadn't had to think about it. So to some extent, you know, sure, there has always been error on the margins and there has been cheating and corruption on the margins as well typically in local elections, you know, where we, we have obviously seen enormous incidents of, of, you know, political machine corruption and so forth. Um, voter suppression. Voter, and not to speak of, well, and on a national level as well as a local level, we've seen voter suppression. We've seen partisan gerrymandering of electoral districts. We've seen people make all kinds of outrageous claims in political ads and so on. So this is not to To say that this election is a little bit different or is likely to be a little bit different is not to say that, you know, everybody has been pure as the driven snow and the process has been perfect in every previous election. Um, But I do think that there are some norms at the national level about fairness uh, and the rules that have been largely followed, you know, I mean, this is something in in the world of international law that international lawyers like to say to those who say, oh, but it's not law. They say, you know, almost all, this is quoting the late Columbia professor Lou Henkin, almost all states abide by almost all international legal rules almost all the time. And that's by and large been just as true of uh, voting rules and procedures and norms at the national electoral level in the U.S. in the last 50 or so years, that almost everybody follows almost all the rules almost all of the time. And the system can deal with a little bit of dirty tricks on the margins without folding. But when you sort of have dirty tricks at the center, I think things are a little bit different. I also think, you know, in some ways the, the 1876, I'm not going to go into any details because I can't plus it gives me post traumatic stress disorder, just thinking about it. Um, um, you know, that could have gone really, really bad. And frankly, Probably the main reason that it didn't end up being much worse than it was is that the nation had a very recent memory of things going catastrophically bad, right? That it was, you know, only about a decade since the Civil War, which on a per capita basis left more Americans dead than any other conflict in U.S. history. And that loomed pretty large in people's minds uh, as a really strong reason to find a compromise, a bad compromise, a horrible compromise, a compromise that in many ways also had its own devastating effects, particularly the the Jim Crow system that emerged, um, but a compromise nonetheless on the grounds that that was better than a reversion to complete civil war, which we were just out of.
0: Well, let me, let me uh, turn to you, Bill, and then Larry, and then Ed. We have about... Uh 10, 12 minutes left to go. I I, I would like to focus on what you came away with thinking needs to be done. Uh, You know, as as the scenarios were explored and subsequent to your discussion of the scenarios, it's clear, uh, impeding the mails, fighting against uh, mail-in ballots, uh, sending troops into cities, um, uh, uh, other forms of voter suppression that have been tried in a number of states, Georgia, Tennessee, Wisconsin, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All uh, foreign intervention, all these things are going to happen in the, in the run up to this. The Durham report will be released. Um, how do you, how do you combat against such a multi-front offensive, Bill?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think some public exposure helps and and Congress has two branches, one of which is controlled by the opposition party and can do things about the post office, for example. They have some ability of oversight and, and legislation. It's hard, of course, because the president might not sign it. So, I think, and there I do think actually the Democrats in the House, they're busy running their own campaigns. They don't want to get in the way of the Biden campaign. And they don't want to make themselves an issue. They probably should, should do more, just put pressure on the executive branch, even if they can't fundamentally change their behavior. I would say the government, but they are state, our elections are state-run. And if we can get federal funding, enough funding to the states that they can actually beef up their election procedures, assuming they want to, and, and many want to, uh, that would help so that on Ed's scenario of the ballots and, you know, kind of com- chaos and complication, uh, let's make sure people are trained in how to do the mail and stuff, and let's change the way they do it so that they don't count the ballots before election day. That's probably inappropriate, but they're ready to be counted right away on election day and not, you know, necessarily a week later, which became the custom in a sense in, in some states, anyway, as we've seen in California and on the West Coast. Um Go- them governors. I mean, de- luckily, I would say from the point of view of the country, bit uh, of a partisan statement. But the Democrats have the governorship of three key swing states, at least uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, for that matter. And they they have Republican state legislatures, but the governors have a fair amount of clout, and they can they have actual authorities too. You know, so it's a little harder to just railroad, you know, ram right over them than it would be if Republicans controlled everything in a state like Florida, where there's Republican control. You know, be serious about seeing what county commissioners and mayors and minority leaders and state legislatures can do in terms of ensuring uh, free, fair counting of the ballots, fair processing ahead of time, of uh, letting the uh, people vote, and so forth. So. It really It's a little granular. I think it requires different things in different states and, and different things that are public and different things that are private. Uh, but I, I think the combination of all these things creates some alternative authorities and leverage against the president's leverage. It's not entirely 50-50, you know, but you add up these different things that you can do at this local, state, and federal level, and at least it begins to perhaps even the playing field, I think.
4: Larry? just to pick up on what Bill just said, I belong to another group called the National Task Force on Election Crises. We've been meeting since June of 2019, and that's what we're doing in all 50 states, sometimes in precincts, in 257 counties in Texas, I think. Um, Other places, we're working with secretaries of state, we're working with adjutants general, we're working with local election officials, We're working to train younger people to be poll workers, for example, because COVID-19 threatens those who normally would come and be poll workers, who are generally over 60. We're doing all manner of things that aren't in the public limelight, but are where they need to be done, where the rubber meets the road. There are 27 counties in Texas that have no backup, period. No backup. Um, We demonstrated how a high school hacker could eliminate a couple of million votes. These are the kinds of things that get people thinking, they get people doing something if they're not inclined toward the other direction. That is, they don't want free and fair elections because they know they'll lose them. Um, And I'm given a lot of uh, hope by the fact that we're, I think, having some success in this task force. I wish we were more aggressive. I wish we were out there. I wish we had more people on the ground in every single precinct all across the country because, as Bill said, this is all about state business. The federal people have very little influence in these elections. It's all about state business. Um, And where you have divided legislatures and where you have a full legislature of Republicans and a Democratic governor is in North Carolina, you have a different situation. But we're dealing with them all, and I'm given some hope by that. Well,
2: that's encouraging. Ed? Um, Well, I I think Bill and Larry have laid out... Um, you know, really essential things. These are local, these are state elections, and often um, where it matters is at the county level, precinct level, and what and what Larry's group's doing and what Protect Democracy um, is doing, with which I know Rosa and Larry are affiliated, I think, um, uh, that they're, they're going through a ton of scenarios of where there are going to be unprecedented sort of legal situations for which uh, teams of lawyers, you know, should be prepared. Because this could be a thousand different diff, different um sort of brush fires you know we could we could have legal legal contests at at many levels but um so there are sort of two things I think sort of larger things I would sort of emphasize one is um uh, the need to educate the public that you're not going to probably or um, highly likely not going to get your results at one am on cNN or, or Fox or wherever it is that night. Um, that this is different. There's much higher uh, mail in balloting, and therefore it's going to take much longer. And, you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe we'd be fortunate in a close election to have an outcome by Thanksgiving. It's, it could be that kind of situation, and people need to be prepared to understand that a delayed result does not mean anybody's cheating or that there's fraud or that there's some kind of you know, uh, black helicopter situation going on, on here. But I think that's really important because most people have a, an idea of election night that I don't think is gonna be borne out this time. Um, the second thing, though, to prevent any of these scenarios, and forgive me for being really obvious, is to ensure that Biden wins by a landslide. That is what Amer- the American P- Republic needs. And um, anything short of a very clear Biden victory is going to ha- stand a very, very high risk of going into one of Rose's scenarios, which, which is, is, is frightening.
0: Okay, so in the remaining four minutes, we've got a minute from each of you. What did you walk away with as your worst fear that you think is actually a likely thing to happen? Um, and I'm going to start with Bill, then go to Larry, then Ed, then Rosa, so Rosa can wrap it up. But Bill.
3: the fear that's likely to happen. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm very worried about October and you, you know, foreign intervention um, and sort of collusion by the Trump. You know, think how much the Trump campaign benefited from what Russia did, and then think about what an administration that has all the agencies of, you know, to make foreign policy to deal with with foreign uh, governments could do. Uh, right after, you know, so the director of national intelligence leaks out on October 27th that Biden has been in total cahoots with the Chinese government for six months, and the, one of the his sons has been paid a lot of money. I mean, whatever. I mean, that comes out with a sort of imprimatur of the federal government, right? That's not just some someone saying it on, on, on you know, uh, on, 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 on social media. And by the time that gets put back in, now, I don't think career people at, at CIA are going to go along with that, but could just a few political appointees in key places like DNI and DHS put out such, it, it's sort of the problem of disinformation on steroids because it has that kind of federal government uh ability to make it seem reputable and just to magnify it so much. I guess that's what I worry about a lot.
4: Larry? The post office worries me. Uh, I happen to like the post office, and I see a double effort here, an effort to privatize the post office, turn it over to Fred Smith and FedEx and all the rest of the privates out there salivating to get that commerce. Uh, And I see the possibility for something like in a swing state where maybe 40 to 50% of the ballots are mail-in. And all of a sudden, the Postmaster General declares COVID nineteen affected the set of post office installations, and therefore all those ballots are impounded and can't be counted because of the epidemic. Um, that sort of thing really worries me, and the, and the destruction of the post office particularly worries me. Okay, Ed,
2: I uh, pick on one of Rose's scenarios, which is um, Biden winning by six million votes, um, um, but Trump still winning the electoral college. Um, and I I don't believe in those circumstances that the majority there. I think it was fifty two forty seven in that scenario. I don't believe that the majority would accept that outcome. I believe you'd get Portland times one hundred, and I think you'd get DHS response times one hundred, and um, that's a terrifying scenario because then you, then you see uh, you know you see Trump as the savior, the man of stability and continuity and law and order um so um and and the country the majority refusing to accept it and what about you uh i'm
1: going to cheat and give two um one is the kind of death by a thousand cuts scenario where there's no single big cheating episode, but you get lots and lots and lots of little ones. And, and, you know, example scenario, every Trump says, well, maybe we should delay the vote. Everybody says, oh, he has no legal power to do that. Okay, he doesn't. But that sort of misses the point. Because what if on the morning of the election, in whatever state that seems most likely to be a decisive swing state with democratic majority, uh, he announces you know, I've 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 canceled the election in Florida, in Michigan, and wherever um, he can't, he he hasn't, he needs no power to do so. But that could co- confuse and keep at home just enough voters that it alters the outcome, even if everybody else starts scrambling and saying that's not true, it's going on, and so on. Or less than that, you have a situation where uh, local level allies decide to announce that they are changing polling places due to COVID at the very last instance. So surprise, heavily Democratic precinct voters, you know, your polling place that was three blocks away is now on the other side of the city. You have no way to get there. So sorry, we had to do it because of COVID. Uh, And so a lot of people don't vote because they can't get there in time. You know, that you could have things like that play out in lots of different places and have it be diffuse enough. That you can't point to a sing one single factor, but cumulatively it could suppress the vote just enough to swing the outcome. Um, and then my more, my more paranoid fear, which I think is less likely to unfold, but, but not impossible, going back to what we said earlier. You know, people think that, you know, this can't happen here, but we forget that it has happened here. And it certainly has it's happened here, it's happened elsewhere, it could happen again here is a sort of full-scale political violence uh, scenario. I mean, as, as Ed said, you know, one version of that is, is one in which uh, uh, people turn out in massive numbers because for the third time in 20 years, uh, we are preparing to inaugurate a president who lost the popular vote by an even larger margin, um, and the, the sort of structural defects of American democracy, plus credible allegations of foreign interference, voter suppression, and so on, that... The majority of the population that does appear, according to polls, to support Biden turns out that you, as Ed says, you get a, a militarized response, uh, whether using the actual military or, or paramilitary forces, uh, and that you end up with a, with a bloodbath, um, potentially involving violence on, on all sides. And that's really, really scary. I think you could see that unfolding in other scenarios as well. Just during a period of uncertainty about who won, in all of our scenarios, one thing I don't think our scenarios did a good job at exploring—we just had the wrong setup for this—was um, political violence. And in, in all of our scenarios, both sides tried to mobilize their supporters. Uh, in all of our scenarios, the Trump side tried to provoke violence in order to have an excuse to invoke the insurrection act, et cetera. Um, And we just hadn't set the teams up or the scenarios up so that we could really make those types of things a part of our exercises. Um, So there was a sort of lurking fear in the background of, whoa, what could happen? And we had different players sort of positing, you know, well, our goal is to cause violence and chaos and have a crackdown. But we weren't able to sort of adjudicate that. We didn't really have a basis on which to say, "Okay, let's say that just happened. Um, and how bad could things get? But, but to me, that that's the other you know big, big fear. You know, smaller fear, but still quite big, is that Trump wins through the death of a thousand cuts uh, strategy. And even bigger fear is that in almost any scenario, we 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 could have large scale political violence. And I I should say that my various you know I've spent some time in my career studying societies that slide into mass atrocity. Uh, And I know many friends and colleagues who spend their whole lives looking at that, and they're all saying, whoa, here in the U.S., we have a lot of the early warning signs that we look at in other countries as predictors of widespread political violence. And that's what really keeps me up at night.
0: Yeah, and that is also, of course, what differentiates the situation from all those other situations we've faced Um, in the past. It's why this initiative that all of you have participated in thus far uh, is so important, uh, why initiatives like the one that Larry mentioned also are so important. And clearly over the course of the next 91 days, we're gonna have to keep focused on it as well as in the months afterwards, you know. And you know, I would say that beyond the leadership of folks like those who participated in the discussion today, uh, the the one message that I would leave to everybody else who's out there listening, we have 100 to People listening each week to Deep State Radio, just to take one example. And every single one of these people carries in their pocket the equivalent of a television studio of twenty years ago. Everybody can be a witness. Everybody can watch and see what's going on. Everybody can participate. And unless we've got a see so- if you see something, say something mentality on the part of voters out there. That makes this death by a thousand cuts scenario all the more likely. So, this is not just you know an interesting development in the news or a worrisome trend. It's something that everybody not only can do something about, but has a a citizen's responsibility to do something about. And that's why I'm so glad that all of you folks have undertaken this and why you have uh, joined us here. I hope you will join us. Um, again, uh, uh, to, to carry this discussion forward. Uh, for those of you who are looking for further discussions in this vein, of course, that's what we do here this week. We actually have five podcasts going out tomorrow. We're doing an interview with Kurt Anderson about his new book, which deals with issues like this. And on Friday, we've got another one of our COVID uh, uh, specials in which Lori. Um, uh, Garrett and, uh, Lena Wen and Kavita Patel are all going to join us again to talk about where we are on that. So please join us for those things. And in the interim, please uh, join me in thanking Bill Crystal, Larry Wilkerson, uh, Ed and Rosa, uh, for joining us for this and for taking this initiative. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Bye bye.